Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. So today I want to ask you as we get started, have you ever wanted to give up? If you ever wanted to just throw in the towel, we talked about Abraham and Sarah last week, and God had given them a promise that they would become a mighty nation full of descendants, Uh, but time elapsed, and they ended up finding themselves very old, beyond childbearing years, and unable to have a child. But God had promised a descendant, uh, descendants from their line. You remember they took matters into their own hand. Sarah uh, said, why don't you sleep with my servant, Hagar, and maybe you can have a line of descendants through her. Because as a surrogate, it was considered in the Middle Eastern culture in that time period, okay, to have somebody else stand in for you to have descendants from. But God didn't have plans that way. He said, Sarah will bear a child. And remember last week, that's what we understood. As God came to the home of Abraham and said, by this time next year, you'll have a son. And you'll call him Isaac, which means laughter. Because if you remember last week, we talked about the laughter of doubt. It's that scoffing laughter like, yeah, right, that's going to happen. Well, in the same scene, not much time, there's no time that has lapsed. These three visitors who had come to Abraham and Sarah, one of them being the angel of the Lord, we come to find out, the very presence of God, they're getting ready to leave town. And they're heading to two famous cities that are very famous even in our day and age, called Sodom and Gomorrah. We're not going to talk about what happens at Sodom and Gomorrah, but we're going to talk about what happens prior to Sodom and Gomorrah as these visitors are leaving the presence of Abraham and Sarah. But again, I want to circle back to the question. Have you ever wanted to give up? Have you ever been persistent enough to push through and not give up when all hope seems lost? John Adair, in the lexicon of leadership, asserts that when you feel like being persistent is a difficult task, think of the honeybee. A red clover blossom contains less than one-eighth of a grain of sugar. 7,000 grains are required to make a pound of honey. So an eighth of a grain, 7,000 grains, makes a pound. Okay? A bee flitting here and there for sweetness must visit 56,000 clover heads for each pound of honey. And there are about 60 flower tubes to each clover head just to get an eighth of a grain of liquid nectar. When a bee performs that operation 3,360,000 times, it secures enough sweetness for one pound of honey. Thank goodness for honeybees that never give up. 
Are you persistent? Are you persistent? So sometimes we can think of persistence as a negative thing. Uh, We kind of juggle the two phrases or the two words, persistence and perseverance. Perseverance is pushing through. Persistence is pushing in. Okay? So persistence is I'm going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. Perseverance is pushing through that which seems impossible. We come to a story today just following the story of Abraham and Sarah where God says this time next year, Sarah will have a child. The the visitors are leaving. And then the Lord says, I need to let Abraham in on my plans, where I'm headed and what I'm going to be doing. Now, I want you to think of that. Just the very fact that God says, I'm going to let Abraham in on my plans that really don't technically involve him says something of the relationship between the two. So let's pick up in Genesis chapter 18, starting with verse 16. It says, then the men got up from their meal. What meal? Do you you remember? Abraham says to the three, I'll make you a feast. And then he says, hey, Sarah, get the frying pans. Okay, that's the meal we were talking about last week. They're getting up from their meal now, and they're heading out towards Sodom. And as they left Abraham, as they left, Abraham went with them to send them on their way, which is kind of a hospitable thing. It's like walking somebody to the door and waiting until they drive off out of sight before you close the door, okay? Uh, So Abraham goes to the edge of his property or the edge of wherever they were located to send them off on their way. And then verse 17, we get this question from the Lord. Should I hide my plan from Abraham? For Abraham will certainly become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. I have singled him out so that he will direct his sons and their families to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and what is just. Then I will do for Abraham what I have promised. So the Lord told Abraham... I've heard of a great outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin is so flagrant. Not fragrant, flagrant. It is a really bad scenario. Uh, I liken this as equated to or paralleled with Genesis chapter 6. What is the famous story of Genesis 6? Thank you. The flood. It had become so bad on the earth during the days of Noah that every thought of humanity was evil. Not just their actions, but their thoughts. So God said, we got to start over. So I'll take this righteous man, Noah, and his family, and there were eight of them. They built the ark. Noah didn't have to go out and collect all the animals. God sent the animals to him. They boarded the ark, and then as the waters receded, we know the story. Abraham, or not Abraham, Noah, but not specifically Noah and his wife, but his sons and their wives repopulated what we know as humanity today. And honestly, that sounds like a fictitious story, but there are geneticists today, secular geneticists, who seem to say you can track 
the microchondrial DNA structure and all that back to a common ancestor. And you could see certain fluctuations in human history with natural disasters at how this, I don't know how it works, but there seems to be some validity to the scriptural stories of the Old Testament that lend themselves to truth and not just fictional stories. Anyway, that was a side note. So now look at Sodom and Gomorrah. So God is, God is going, and the angels are going, to this, these two cities. And it says, God says, their sin is so flagrant. It's almost as if he's saying, listen, it's so bad there. I mean, even the thoughts of people are corrupt and evil. And on a smaller scale, you get this flood story but in a different context for Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going down to see, verse 21, if their actions are as wicked as I've heard. If not, I want to know. Well, does that God know everything? Ooh, that's a tough... So what's going on here? I'm going down to see if their thoughts and their sins are as bad as I've been told. That's a good question. So we tend to add what is called anthropomorphic language and attributes to God. God is spirit. He is creator. His attributes are way beyond our comprehension. So in order for the authors of scripture to give context to basic human finite thinking, we put things in context to anthropomorphic language, like God is going down to see something. Or God, as he's speaking to the characters of Scripture, will add this language to give context to what God is about to do. Because, let's be honest, who completely knows the ways of God? Who can comprehend everything about God? None of us. Only God can comprehend himself. He is incomprehensible, but one of the common things we know about him is that he is good, he is holy, and he is love. And everything he does is out of the context of that, those characteristics. And so, so now God is going down to see if it's really as bad as he has been told. God has messengers. Did you know that? What do we call God's messengers? Angels. Yes, angels are a reality. We like to put them in the category of myth or legend, but angels are a reality of the heavenly throne room and the heavenly spaces in the spiritual context. Hebrews 13 says some of us have maybe even entertained angels and we've been unaware of it. These messengers of God are now telling God in this back and forth context, it's getting pretty rough. Daniel even talks about how the angel of the Lord was inhibited from coming to him because of the, the, the Persian context and, the, and the, the spiritual battle that was going on there. There is a whole lot to this picture that unless we are willing to unpack the spiritual nature of that realm that we cannot see, that we don't often understand. And because we don't experience the day-to-day -day realities in tangible ways all the time of that spiritual realm, or do we? 
and we just don't realize it, we oftentimes chalk those kind of things up to myth. But they're not. They're reality. So he's going down to see if the sin is as flagrant as it is. Verse 22, the other men turned and headed towards Sodom. So there were three. Remember, there were three there. The angel of the Lord stayed with, with Abraham for a moment to tell him his plan. The other two went on. And we know that the other two, if you go further into Genesis 19, are the two angels that go to Lot, to Lot's house, okay? Just to give you context to where this is at in Scripture. The other two men turned and headed towards Sodom, but the Lord remained with Abraham. And Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Now, this is a very human response, and it's actually a very good human response, because Abraham is saying, okay, wait a minute, you're going down to see if this is, the sin is so flagrant, it's really bad. He knows that God is on his way with his angels to take care of the flagrant sin. And how does God take care of it? We call this judgment. There is a final judgment. There, there are multiple judgments we see throughout, human, or throughout the Old Testament scripture. And then when we read in the New Testament, there is a final judgment at the second coming of Christ where we will all stand before God and be judged, each according to his deeds and according to his belief in Christ or her belief in Christ. And so Abraham realizes what's getting ready to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, are you really going to wipe out the whole place? I mean, what about the righteous people that are there? See, so Abraham is assuming or presuming that there are righteous people there. There's got to be somebody that's good that's still there. I mean, are both cities so horrible and sinful that no one righteous person could be there? But see, that's not what he's getting at yet. So he starts this dialogue with God. See, he leans in. He says he approached him. Abraham approached him. He leaned into God and said, are you going to wipe away the righteous and the wicked? Verse 24, suppose you find 50 righteous people there in the city. Will you sweep it away and not spare it for their sakes? I mean, surely you, you wouldn't do such a thing. I mean, destroying the righteous along with the wicked... Would you, why would you treat the righteous and the wicked exactly the same? It's a good question, right? We, we could ask that question today. Surely there were good people in the trade towers that fell. Surely there were good people when Katrina hit. Surely there were good people when the tsunami hit Indonesia. Now, are all of those acts of judgment? It's up for speculation. I'm not indicating and or saying they are. Natural disasters oftentimes are just natural disasters. But God now has approached Abraham and said, I'm heading here to deal with this problem. So what if there's 50? God, if there's 50 righteous people, are you still going to wipe out these thousands of people in both of these cities? And what does God say? If I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I'll spare the entire city for their sake. So for 50 people, God isn't going to spare thousands. That's pretty amazing, right? It's a pretty awesome thing to do. But then Abraham, it says Abraham spoke again. He's leaning back in. Hey, God, I know I asked you about 50. 
Since I've begun to speak, let me speak further, Lord. Even though I'm dust and ashes. <laughs> I love this. And I think it's true humility, but let's be honest. When you're asking someone who holds ultimate, eminent power and authority can snuff you out like that, and you've asked a question, and the question is met with a positive response, yeah, I'll, I'll save the city if there's 50. He's like, huh. I realize I'm just dust and ashes. But how about, I don't know, let's say... Let's say 45 righteous people rather than 50. Would you wipe out an entire two cities for 40? How many of you have been to an auction before? Okay. Uh, George Patterson, he's not with us today. He's still recuperating and stuff. Auctioneer extraordinaire. He's, what, 94, 95? He's in his mid-90s. He can still jibber-jabber and talk like that. I could see him standing before God doing the auctioneer thing, right, over Sodom and Gomorrah. George, if you're watching, love you, buddy. All right. 40. If there's 40, I know I'm just dust and ashes, but if there's 40 instead of 50, would you destroy the whole city for lack of just five? Or as he say, 45. Sorry, 45. For, yeah, he's, so he's, he's taking it down incrementally. 45. Do I hear 45? And what does God say? And the Lord said, okay, I won't destroy it if I find 45 righteous people there. And then Abraham pressed, pressed his request a little further. And let's suppose there's 40. What about 40? Do I hear 40? And the Lord replied, I won't destroy it for the sake of 40. And then he realizes he's probably testing the Lord's patience. What is our theme for the year? Patience. And he says, um, that's exactly what he says. What's he say? He says, I will not, I will not destroy for 45 righteous people. Then Abraham pressed further, uh, suppose there are only 40. And then the Lord replied, I won't destroy for 40. And then verse 30, please don't be angry, my Lord. Abraham pleaded, let me speak. Suppose only 30 righteous are found. And what does the Lord say? Of course, if there's 30, I won't destroy the cities. Then Abraham said, since I dared to speak to the Lord, let me continue. Suppose there are only 20. And the Lord replied, then I will not destroy it for the sake of the 20. And it says, finally. I mean, again, I like to place myself in the narrative, because like if I was there like a fly watching this unfold, can you imagine the banter back and forth? Can you imagine the dialogue? Can you imagine the scene, the setting, the smell of the air, the content? Can you imagine all of that? Set yourself in the scene. Abraham continues to push in to this God he knows holds ultimate authority and has every right to do what he says he's going to do. And he realizes that if God so chose with his leaning in and continuing to question him over and over persistently, that God could say, dude, I'm done with you too. Listen, I'm a parent. I have four kids. 
Three of them are at camp, one's in children's ministry right now, so I can say whatever I want about them. (laughs) But I won't. But I have persistent kids. And it's not changed as I've gotten older. It, It starts with a lollipop or a popsicle, and it moves to, can I go to this person's house? Can I go to this event? Can I drive the car? Can I have 20 bucks? Right? And they won't take no for an answer. Do I hear, do I hear 19? How about 18 bucks? <laughs> and what do we as parents or guardians do? Back off! We stiff arm, right? Some of us relent because we're like, oh, I just can't do this anymore. <laughs> You're asking so many questions. <laughs> You're sucking the life out of me. But is that the response God gives? To Abraham. Now, kids, if you're in here, teenagers, if you're in here and you're hearing the story, this doesn't mean that you can badger your parents to get what you want. Okay? Let your yes be yes yes, and your no be no. But in this situation, Abraham is testing the character of an almighty God whom he loves and is bold enough to ask the deeper questions. And so he says, Lord, please don't be angry with me if I speak one more time. Suppose there are only 10 found there. Now think of 10 in comparison to thousands. Maybe even pushing 10,000 between the two cities. I'd have to look up my population statistics to find out the exact details of how many people were in Sodom and Gomorrah. But the cities were not as populous as some of our major cities today. Okay, Sodom and Gomorrah were smaller cities, but they did, they did have thousands of people in them. But now think of 10 compared to several thousand. Now what does the Lord tell him in response to 10? The Lord replied, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. What does that say about the character, the grace, and the heart of Almighty God? Again, we, we tend to look at the God of the Old Testament as mean, wrathful, ah, you know, and he's going to strike you down. But we skim over passages like this where we see this Patient God in the face of a persistent Abraham relenting to the fact that he's willing, if there are ten righteous there, to not destroy those two cities. All the wickedness, all the flagrant sin going on, and God says if there's ten good people, ten righteous people, what does righteous mean? Right people, people who are living rightly, holy, good lives. And what does that look like in God's context? God's context of rightness and holiness are connected to not only his nature, but also the law he's written on our hearts. God knows the hearts of each and every one of us. It's stated over and over again through the Old and New Testament. God looks upon the heart, and he knows if there are 10 people who have the heart of God in those cities, he will spare the cities. 
When the Lord had finished his conversation with Abraham, he went on his way, and Abraham returned to his tent. That's the end of that. So you're thinking we're going to get into the really, the angels going, and then the people wanting to. That's a whole different topic and sermon for a different time. I want to look at the persistence of Abraham and the response of God today. The persistence of Abraham and the response of God. See, too many of us give up too quickly when we should persist in our approach of God. Too many of us believe that God maybe isn't listening when we've approached him more than once over a specific issue. How many times did Abraham persist? A lot. Count them up. It wasn't just once, twice, and we think three times, strike out. (laughs) No, he kept pushing in. He didn't know anything about American baseball. He pushed all the way through. And he knew, he knew he might have been testing the patience of God. But there was something that Abraham desired to know about God. And in order to know that about God, he continued to press in. Is God really as good as I've trusted him to be? No, I haven't trusted him perfectly. No, no, I haven't done what is right all the time and we, we've taken matters into our own hands and tried to fix situations that, that God wasn't coming through for us on in our timetable. All right, God, are you really all that you're cracked up to be? You ever wondered? Have you ever tested, God, and I don't mean test, don't think that I'm saying you need to do something wrong. But have you ever pressed in and have you ever been persistent with God through difficult circumstances enough to be able to persevere and push through to see that God is truly who he says he is? To see that he's trustworthy and good and that he does love you. To see that his character is immaculately holy and perfect and beyond any character the world has ever known. Here's the key point. God's willingness to put up with our persistence shows the depths of his patience. And again, the sad truth is we don't persist enough. See, I think oftentimes God wants to know if we're really in this for him or are we really in this for us. You want to know the truth of the relationship with God is that you're in it for him rather than for you. Let me ask you this question. How many of you are in your marriages or your relationships with your significant other for you? That's a tough one. Because if you answer that, that you're in it for you, you're selfish, and you're in it for the wrong reasons. Sorry to be so heavy-handed. A lot of the reasons I see marriage difficulties, even especially within the church, is because we're trying to see how much we can get out of the other person because they're not meeting our needs, right? One of the things I challenge premarital counseling couples and marital couples who come to me um, with difficulties or they're getting ready to start their marriage off, one of the things I always say is, if you try to outgive each other in the marriage, you'll find yourselves a lot healthier in the long run. 
But if you keep taking, taking, and taking because you have certain needs that you think you need met, you're going to suck the life out of that relationship. Do you understand what I'm saying? So now let's approach that same context, that same relationship with God. Are we in our relationship with God for his sake or for ours? That's a tough one. Because our gut reaction says, well, I get salvation, I get forgiveness of sin, I get redemption, I get heaven. We look at our benefits, and I'm not saying that's wrong, but the relationship will only go so far when we're constantly looking at what we're in it for. Do you hear what I'm saying? But human, sinful, fallen, broken nature always looks to see what we're going to get out of something. What are we going to benefit out of this? When we look at God, we see a whole different perspective. God does not need us. God is not powerless without us, is he? Did God have to create us? Did he need to create us? No, God was fully self-sufficient without us and doesn't necessarily need us for anything. But out of his very nature, which is love, love does what? Does love take? What does love do? It gives. And out of that giving nature, it creates. Do you understand? The very nature of God, who John says in 1 John is love, gives. And when Jesus tells us in the New Testament, you should love one another as I first loved you, they will know that you are my followers, my disciples, by your love for one another. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor. The same Greek word used there, agape, selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. That kind of persistent love pursues the object of its love, even though it doesn't need. And so God creates, and he pushes in, and he persists, even through our stubbornness. Even when we're in blatant sin, he pushes in. But there is not, there's not a limit to God's love, but there is a limit to God's patience. It says he is long-suffering. Do you remember the video we watched a few weeks back? Uh, the video of this word long-suffering, it means to, God is long-nosed. It's really how that's translated in Hebrew. He is a, he, Hebrew, he has a long nose. Because if your nose gets red, it indicates your emotions are on heightened awareness, more, more than like your anger. When you get angry, your face gets really red, Right? especially around the nose area. So if you have a long nose, the redness starts at the tip and it keeps moving back until it hits the face. Long suffering, long nose. He is extremely patient, slow to anger is how we say this. God persistently allows us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to get things right. But if we persist in the wrong ways and in the wrong things, there is a limit to that long suffering to where he says, fine, you obviously don't want me, desire me, or need my help. 
I love you and desire you, and I've pressed in as much as I can, but you've proven to me and your resistance to me that you want nothing to do with me. You've rejected me long enough, and my patience has worn thin. And when God's patience wears thin is where judgment comes into play. And what does God's judgment look like when his patience wears thin? It is his complete withdrawal from a situation. Do you hear me? Sodom and Gomorrah had completely withdrawn. But Abraham is having this back and forth. What if there's 10 people who are not withdrawn for you? 10 people who are saying, yes, I, I love him and I, I still want to do what's right. God says, okay. If there's 10 people that are still like that, I'll spare the cities. Because his love is that big, that good, and that great. God let Abraham in on his plan for Sodom and Gomorrah which showed how much he loved Abraham. Did God need to let Abraham in on the story? In on his plans? No, he didn't. God never needs to let us in on anything. But if there's anything that the Bible shows us is that he's constantly letting his people in or people in on things when he doesn't have to. The world is a mess, would you agree? And you may think it's a mess in a different way than I think it's a mess, but I think we can all consistently agree the world is in a mess. And we can point the finger and blame God for it, but we need to be pointing back here. Because why do we point here? What did I say just a little bit ago? I'm here to see what I can get out of things. What do I need? I'm getting, hear me out here. When we become so inward focused, we become like Sodom and Gomorrah, individually, corporately. When we become so inward focused on who we are and what we need, Christians and non-Christians alike, the enemy's got us exactly where he wants us because he's twisted reality. You can look at it any which way you want to. But God is in this relationship, not for himself, but because he loves you. And if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've not surrendered yourself to him, he's still pressing into you. But like I've been told since I was a kid, growing up in the church, there is a limit to God's pressing in. He will only press in for so long that still small voice will get quieter and quieter and quieter. I, I never say there's no hope, but there are some people that come to the edge or the brink of that relationship, if there is any at all, that they don't hear that voice anymore, that still small voice. And God has said, fine. And he withdraws. God let Abraham in on this plan because he loved him. And Abraham pressed into God's plan to see who God really is. The second point is God's willing to acquiesce to Abraham's persistent request to withhold judgment for the sake of the potential righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. I think this is crazy, but there are six times. He asked for 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, and 10. He asked him six times. It's a lot. 
Now, my kids ask 12, 13, 15, 100 times. And my wife can attest to this. It's hard. Abraham pressed in, and God didn't lose his patience. God didn't say, dude, you're pressing your luck. He didn't, he didn't push back at Abraham. You see, God likes it when we press in to him. I said this in my class this morning, and I've said it over the past several years. One of my favorite verses over the past few years has become Jeremiah 29, 13. We talk about 29.12, we use it at graduations, you know, I, for I know the plans I made for you, declares the Lord, blah, 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 right? But Jeremiah 29.13 is one of the most important verses for me. God is telling the people through Jeremiah that you will seek me and find me when you do what? Seek me with all your heart. See, the problem is we only seek with part of our hearts, half of our hearts. We lose we lose, we lose patience when we press too much. That's the sin nature. See, God loves it when we press into him. God loves it when we ask him questions because he is truth. When you press into truth, what do you ultimately find? Truth. When we press into truth only so far, what do we get? Partial truth. When we press into truth and then give up and walk away, what do we have? We don't have truth. You see, God was allowing Abraham to press into his plan, to ask him questions, to put himself in a position to where he'd be humble enough to seek God's face. Ladies and gentlemen, we give up way too easily. You have microwaves at home? We don't like to wait, especially now where there's a worker shortage and we're going through the drive-thru and we wait for how long? Or business is closed. We, we have been so accustomed to a life of convenience that we think God should work that way. Are you hearing me? Listen, I'm pointing fingers back at me. God, you've got to come through. God, it's on my time, not yours. We don't say that. That's what we really mean. God, I'm dying on the vine here. Throw me a rope. And God says, wait. I can't. I'm barely hanging on. I'm down to one finger. Right? Right, Dane? Got the one finger up there, right? I'm hanging on by one finger. You ever seen those cliffhangers and they're in the movies or the TV shows and oh, one finger goes, another goes, another, and they're one finger. You ever feel that way? God, I've, I'm down to my last. I'm down to my last. I got nothing. Just wait. This seems cruel, doesn't it? Only to realize that God has built a ladder under us while we're looking to that one finger. Do you understand what I'm saying? He's been building a platform under you so that when you, you think, okay, I can't do it, and you let go, you realize that the ground was this far beneath you because he'd been building up to you. 
God allowed Abraham to probe his character in order to prove that he can be trusted. Let me ask you this morning, do you probe God's character enough to prove that he can be trusted? You're like, I don't know how to do that. The best place, you're going to hear me, until I'm no longer your pastor, whether it's I die, which is possible, I just give out, something happens. You're going to hear me say this over and over, and you're probably going to get sick of me saying this, but if you don't get into the word of God, you will never know what his character is like. I was saying this this morning. We have, uh, I was teaching the class, and we have our youth in there. And, uh, and I, I, um, you've heard me say this before, but I'll, I'll repeat it again. I was on summer tour for two years in college, so my, my freshman and, and my sophomore year. I sang in a group. We traveled the eastern United States, and um, I'd started dating this lovely lady by the name of Sarah Lee. And in the second year I was out there, she would actually find out where we were going to be in our route, uh, what church we were going to be singing at or venue, and she would write letters. This is before really email and all that caught on. What is email? <laughs> you know, before Snapchat, Facebook, and all that jazz, right? Email even dates me, okay? So she would handwrite letters. When that letter would come and it would surprise me, I'd be anxiously awake. I'm like, oh, is she going to send another one to the next location? It's like Christmas gift. And I would open it up and I would read the second to last sentence on the, last, on the, on the, on the other page. And that was it. I'd close it back up and I was done. Do you believe that? No, because she had captivated me. And she still does. Because she, you don't hear me say that a lot. I'm not a romantic. I feel kind of icky when I'm like, oh, I love you. But I, I am not the romantic guy. She could tell you after 22 years of marriage, it's been a rough go from this guy. But we'll get those letters, and I would, I would tear them open gently because I'm like type A in some ways, OCD. And I pull that letter out, and I would start from the beginning, and I would hang on every word. And I'd flip it over if there was a second page, and there usually was, because he's an amazing writer, especially to me. <laughs> and I would read, and I would soak it in. And I was telling the class this morning, there were days I'd, I'd smell the page, just to see if there was any hint of her, of her fragrance on there, you know? Are you familiar with that? Okay? You know what I'm talking about. You've at least, I would think at some time in your life, had somebody in your life that was like that. I wouldn't start in the middle. I wouldn't just read one sentence obscurely from anywhere. I would read from the beginning to the end. And I would, there would be phrases that I would memorize. I miss you. I can't wait to see you again. I mean, those kind of things, right? And I'd go back and reread that. And I'd touch the letters. I mean, you do these weird things because you're just so head over heels, right? Why do we approach God differently? Why do we approach the word of God differently? Should we not devour it as one we love with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength? Shouldn't we dig in, chew on it, memorize it? Hide it in our hearts so that we won't sin against him. 
Go back to the love letters of our spouses so that we don't cheat on them, so that we don't betray them. Shouldn't we do the word of God, read the word of God, memorize the word of God the same way so that we don't betray him with any aspect of our lives? See, Abraham wanted to know, God, are you trustworthy? Are you as good as you seem to be? And do you know God didn't stop testing Abraham there? We, Isaac hasn't even been born yet. What does God call Abraham to do with Isaac when Isaac is, I don't know, say the early teen years? Oh, that's a good one. Hey, Abraham, you remember that promised son I gave you? Not, not Ishmael, but Isaac? You know, when you laughed in doubt, and so did Sarah. So here's, here's the plan. I'm going to let you in on this one, too. Why don't you take Isaac to the mountains of Moriah, which we know is modern-day Jerusalem. I want you to take him there, and I want you to sacrifice him to me as a burnt offering. Cha-ching. Got it? <laughs> what? You want... So God is testing Abraham to see if he's trustworthy as much as Abraham is. Do you see this dynamic relationship? Do you really love me the way you say you do? Do you really care for me? Are you really trustworthy? Do you see what's happening in this world? It keeps getting more and more intimate. Abraham comes to know Christ intimately through the back and forth dialogue. We spare it for 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. I guess I want to leave you with anything as our worship team comes forward today is um, don't give up. I, let, me, let me rephrase and let me clarify. Some of you are working toward things you should give up on, okay? Some of you are living lifestyles that are going to lead to a dead end. As a matter of fact, that dead end is a catastrophic dead end. Some of you need to give up on certain things. What I'm telling you not to give up on is God. As you lean into God, yes, you lose your selfish self, but you gain your real self. You will never know your real self apart from God. You may have an idea of who you are, but you don't really know the fullness of who you are apart from Christ. And until you truly press into him, test his character, know his love for you, you cannot surrender that false self in order to become the true self God created you to be. And some of you are living with masks on right now because you're not willing to push through to press in. Because I think, if truth be known, you're afraid of what you might find. You're afraid of what you might have to deal with. If you press into God, he has this ultimate way of revealing things to you about yourself that don't line up with his character that he needs you to work on and desires for you to take care of. But I think a lot of times we don't lean in or press into God because we're afraid of what we will see or what he might notice or what he might cause us to have to deal with that we don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole. 
We've got to be like Abraham. He wasn't perfect, but he was persistent. He wasn't perfect, but he was persistent. We're going to look at that next week. Abraham lied. <gasps> he did. What did he lie about? See, his lie proved he wasn't perfect because he didn't trust God in that scenario. But did God continue to be persistent to press into him to fulfill the promises through him? Yes, he did. But Abraham didn't give up on persisting with God either. He pressed in, he pressed through, and in essence persevered, which caused his faith to strengthen. And is why he is written down in Hebrews chapter 11 in the hall of faith as one who persisted and whose faith was counted toward them as righteousness. He didn't give up. I pray for you. I pray for you because I care about you. And I love you guys. And I mean that sincerely. No matter who you are in this place or who you are watching online. But imagine if I love you that much, how much more does God love you? Right? And I don't know as much about you as God does. And God loves you beyond who you are and the mistakes you've made. And he desires for you to know him intimately. Our altars are always open to come and pray. If you're having trouble pushing through, persisting, if you're doubting or questioning God and his character, I challenge you to continue to press into him. He will always prove to be more than you need because he loves you. Let's pray. Father, we love you this morning. And um, some of us honestly have trust issues, if we're being honest. Yeah, we believe in you and, and we, be, we believe that you are God and that you created everything. Some of us do. But we only believe you up to a point. And the reality is we struggle, we doubt, we question. In our own human nature, we wonder if you're truly going to come through for us. But if your word proves anything to us, is that you are trustworthy. If life experience for those of us who truly have pressed in, persisted into you, know is that you can be trusted. We've, been, we, we've, we've grown up in a culture that has conditioned us to not be persistent. We've grown up in a culture that drives home this convenience factor. God, though you may not do things in a convenient way on our timetable, everything you do and the way you do it and in your timing is always good. Forgive us where we faltered and failed and doubted and not trusted. Give us the strength to persist boldness to stand firm in the truth of your word. And those of us that may be standing on the outside of that, I pray that you would break through to us so that we can surrender our lives to you. We love you, Father. Thank you for your love for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. 
make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.